Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad you're here. Week five of a series called Jesus Is. Normally we don't go, usually most of our series are about four weeks long. And so usually after about week, once we're into week five, I'm so kind of bored with the series. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to move on. But man, not this one. This is the best. Every year we do a series that just kind of focuses our thoughts and attention on the person of Jesus. And this series has been so fun for me. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've been a part of most of them. If not, uh, go grab a free CD in the back. I know our online is a little backed up because we've been so busy writing and doing things for the for the quick to the point series. But man, this is such a great series. We have been talking about the idea that everybody thinks about Jesus, has a mental picture about Jesus, has an emotion connected to Jesus. Some thought crosses your mind when we say who is Jesus some way, somehow you fill in the blank. And most of us most of us fill in the blank based on some type of past experience, a childhood experience, maybe what our churches taught us or indoctrinated and ingrained us with. And so we have all these different image of, images of Jesus. But how many of you know, like, they're not always the best images or the correct images. Sometimes, they, they, you know, we have a way of seeing the world not the way that it really is. We have a way of seeing the world as we are. And so what we do is, is we have these filters, based on our life experience, based on our personality. And what we do is, is we take the person of Jesus, run him through our filter, and then come out with something maybe different than who he really is. And so we've been trying to discover, when you strip everything down, who is Jesus? And we've, we've, we've kind of run the gauntlet here in week five. I want to hopefully shed light on something. And here's my biggest hope, is that at the end of the day, you're going to be like, wow, that makes so much more sense of what Jesus did, what he said, and what he was all about. This is going to be good. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes one more time before we begin. Jesus, speak to us today. Challenge us today. God, I, I pray that above all, we would just get a, a glimpse of who you are. That we would get an amazing view of how great you are. Of who you are and what we're all about, Lord. That is my prayer today in Jesus' name. We all said... Amen. If you have your Bibles, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 11. If not, it's on the screen. There's a saying that Jesus had that for me always seemed just a bit odd and a bit confusing. And if you're anything like me, and now, now here's what you need to know. I went to school to become a pastor, and I did a lot of theological studies in school, and then have been doing this for a really long time. But when you back up, I remember what it was like to read the Bible and just be like, huh? And well, let's just keep reading. You know, read this, but like, that doesn't make it. Jesus sounds many times like a, like, a, like a guru, and you're like, I don't know what that means. I'll just keep reading until something makes sense. Did you ever feel like that? No, no, Okay, two of us. And so anyway... Here's the deal. Jesus had these things that he did or things that he said that because we don't understand the context of it, it just blows right over our head. And here's one of them. Here, here's what Jesus said in the book of Matthew. He's talking to a group of people and he says this. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, that just sounds easy, doesn't it? Like, I'm down with that. Because how many of you want your burdens removed? Yeah. Take my yoke. Everybody say my yoke. That's where he loses me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, everybody say my yoke. There's that yoke thing again. For my yoke is easy and my burden is liked. Now, in general, it sounds pretty good, right? Like in gen but then he starts throwing this yoke thing. And now, I don't know about you, but like, and, and there's another portion of Scripture, a couple of them, where the, the yoke is referred to, you know, in, in the farming sense, you would take an animal and you'd throw a yoke over its neck and be like, get to work. 
start to pull it, do something. And for the longest time, I just made the assumption that Jesus, when he said, my yoke is easy, it meant that I was the animal. Jesus was hitching me up to his program. But at least it wasn't that bad, right? Like, it's a burden, but it's not that bad. And I thought, well, Jesus is like, I'm down with you for whatever, and I'm down for, I'll carry whatever, I'm just down. But it just gave this image of Jesus, I don't quite understand this. And so it gave me the image that I'm, I'm the animal, and I'm supposed to pull my weight now. And, and, I, and then I learned something. What I learned was, is I learned the, the history the culture, the context, and the language of what he's actually saying here. And then all of a sudden you have one of these moments where you're just like, Pow. everybody say yoke. Here's what you need to know about Jesus is that Jesus lived in a certain culture in a time period in which this would have made total sense to them. But we kind of get lost in translation a little bit. Here's what you need to know is that your yoke was a Hebrew idiom, meaning just kind of a phrase that they used, and the rabbis used to use it. A rabbi's yoke, which was the Jewish teacher, a rabbi's yoke was his interpretation of the scriptures and how you were supposed to live it out. So it wasn't, we're hooking you up to an animal. He was saying this, that I have a yoke. I'm a teacher and a rabbi, and I have a yoke. And I want you to know that my way of living out the scriptures, my way of living for God, it's totally different than the way that you guys have been currently taught. My yoke is easy. This burden is light. You're going to find rest and peace for your souls. This is something totally new. And so Jesus introduced this thing called the yoke. And, and now all of a sudden we're like, oh, okay, wait a minute. So this is what you need to know is that Jesus was indeed a rabbi. Like, so when, when we think about Jesus, I know there's a modern rabbi and they wear the hat and the, the yarmulke and they got the little curly sideburn thing going. If you, how many of you have been to New York City? Just, you know, is it? Yeah. So that's not what Jesus looked like, but... Before the, the, the term rabbi was so formalized, it was something much, much more sacred and honorable in Jesus' day than it is even now. And so Jesus was a rabbi. You need to know that. This is why if you read the scripture, you keep seeing people call him rabbi. And we kind of don't notice it. We don't even pick up on it. Sometimes, depending on what translation of the Bible you read, it just says teacher. But in their word, it would have been rabbi. Does that make sense? Like he's called rabbi by a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a lawyer. Common people, disciples, Mary. I mean, they, they all refer to him throughout the text. I could pull up every one, but it takes much time. They call him rabbi. Now, this makes so much more sense. Have you ever asked a question like, where was Jesus from, from like 12 to 30? You ever notice that? You see him in the temple when he's 12, and then he reappears at 30 and gets baptized, and you're like, what's he been doing? Where has he been? What's been going on? Well, here's the deal. The rabbis had a training system, and the Hebrew culture worked like this. You've got to remember, in their day, they had no media. But in our day, we are constantly fascinated by certain celebrities, right? We, as, as like children, if you ask kids, like, who do you want to be when you grow up, depending on what they're into, well, I want to, I want to be a football player, or I want to be a rock star, or I want to be this, or I want to be that. And so we have these images of, like, who the coolest people in the world are, right? You got that in your head now? In their day, the coolest person that you could have ever been was the rabbi. That was the sickest, dopest, most, oh, you, man, man, when I grow up, when I grow up, I'm going to be, and you would have, you'd have rabbi envy, you'd have a rabbi stardom. The rabbi was the pinnacle of social awesomeness. That's not even a real phrase. I made that up. That's, so like, so now go back in your mind. 
what would be awesome? Like little kids are like, man, I want to be like rabbi so-and-so. And so you would want to be like the rabbi. That was who you aimed to be. And every Hebrew boy wanted to be a rabbi. And every Hebrew parents want their kids to be what? A rabbi. It was just the coolest thing. You wanted to be the rabbi. And so what you would do is they had a schooling system. And so the first thing you would do to get into this, this first level of school was this. You had to memorize the book of Leviticus. Awesome. So if you have your Bible, just flip that open right now. Just breeze through that and take a gander and see what you think about that. And so you got to remember, they didn't all have copies of the Bible like you and I did. They would memorize Scripture, and then you had to memorize the book of Leviticus, usually based on your father's memory of the book of Leviticus. So, like, if you could do that, if you could pull that off by the age of six. Yeah, some of y'all, some of y'all like, we got memory verses in this upcoming series. It's like one verse per week. And you're like, man, that's so hard. Um, I can't, I just can't. It's so hard. They would memorize the book of Leviticus. And if you could memorize the book of Leviticus, because by, by the age of six, you would go into their first level of school, which is called the Bet Safar. Okay? It was basically their primary school, their elementary school. It, it literally just meant the house of schooling or the house of the book. That was, that was what they went to. During your time at elementary school, not only would you be taught in all kinds of basic knowledge things, because most kids, if you couldn't get into this, you just were raised and did your family trade. That's just what you would do. But if you were smart enough and you were just elite and, and, and had the mind to do it, you would go on to this school, and during this school, you would go on to memorize the other Four books of the Torah. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You'd already got Leviticus down, so now they're going to jump in the other four. And that was your goal. And at any point, if you didn't measure up, they would release you from school and say, go home and learn your family's trade. You're not good enough for this yet. Because only the elite of the elite of the elite would actually become a rabbi. It wasn't like there was hundreds of them. It was a very, very select few that could meet all these qualifications. And so if, everybody say if, if you did all of this, by the age of, of, of 12, then you would go on to the next level of school. It was called the Bet Talmud. Now, Talmud is like if the Talmud in the Hebrew language is disciple. So the first one was called the house of the book. This one's called the house of the disciple. And this is where you would go to school. Now, the way that you would pass the test was not only uh, to memorize all the first five books of the Bible, but then they'd have a test to see if you could get in this school. And the way that you passed the test was they would just sit and talk to you as a 12-year-old. You ever talk to a 12-year-old today? And not a lot going on up in there, is there? And so they would, they would talk to you. I'm so, I'm so sorry if you're 12 and I've offended you. We'll talk about forgiveness later. There's, there's, what they would do is this. Not only would you have to memorize all these things, but they would just sit down and talk with you. And they would begin to ask you questions. And they would not want you to return with answers. They would want you to return with more questions. Let me read something for you. This is going to make more sense. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom, and after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Verse 46, after three days, that's some bad parenting right there, um, after three days, he left your kid for three days, didn't even know where he was, luckily he's 12, 12 year olds were way sharper back then, I think, than they are today, so anyway, three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the what? The teachers. Listening to them and asking them questions. Now, does that make sense? What was he doing? He was passing his test. He was saying, I can, I can chop it up with the best of you. Because what they believed was that there was no end to the depth of who God was. And so the idea was is to keep talking. Because you can't get to the end of God. 
It's just fun to talk about God and to talk about what he's like and what he would do and how the scriptures and how the Torah and how how he would want us to then live. And so they just wanted to see smart you were based on the questions that you asked. And there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of, uh, of wisdom behind the questions that you ask. Typically, I've found that that people who are shallow ask shallow questions and, and, and people that, you know, you, you, when you ask shallow questions, you get shallow answers. When you ask no questions, you get no answers. And if you ask profound questions, you get profound. OK, we're good. We're moving on. So. So Jesus goes on to what we call the Bet Talmud. Now, the Bet Talmud is where you would be from roughly the ages of 12 to 30, as long as you kept passing all the tests. There were five stages of the Bet Talmud, and then you would have to just run the gauntlet to pass all these tests. And at any point in time, if you didn't measure up and if they didn't think you were smart enough, they would say, all right, go home. It's time for you to learn your family trade. And you would just be dismissed and you'd move on with life and you'd say, well, that's tough. I, I wish I could have passed the test. I wish I could have been the rock star rabbi. It just didn't work out. And so then what you find is this, is that Jesus appears at the age of 30. And what's the first thing that Jesus does when he appears at the age of 30? He gets baptized. You ever ask the question, why did Jesus wait till he was 30 to get baptized? Because baptism was a thing in their day. What you would do is, is that at your baptism... You would be confirmed as a rabbi. Now, here's the deal. You could graduate rabbi school as, as a normal rabbi, or there was a really, really special ordination that they gave to only the top elite rabbis. And you might only have maybe one or two per generation. It was called a rabbi with authority. You ever remember the story where they listen to Jesus and they say, wow, you do not teach like the other teachers. You teach as one with. Yeah, you remember that scripture? Now that makes sense, doesn't it? He wasn't just yelling at people. You know what I mean? Like, well, he's really authoritative. No, he's not yelling at people. He actually taught with authority. And here's what authority meant. They, they used a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word was smika. And basically, if you would pass through the Bet Talmud to the highest level, if you did all of this and then got baptized, at your baptism, you'd have to be confirmed by two other sources to become a rabbi with smika. Who spoke at Jesus' baptism? John the Baptist. Remember, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then when he comes up out of the water, what do all the people hear? The people hear the voice of God say, this is my son and who, who I am well pleased. Listen to him. So he's confirmed. And so now this makes it. Have you ever wondered? This always felt weird to me. Did you ever wonder why Jesus's first sermon was so well attended that he had to go up onto a mountaintop because of the mob and the crowd? Like who? I remember my first sermon. It was a hundred people, and I literally uh, ran out of stuff to say in 12 minutes. Now y'all wish I could shrink it down that much, right? But it was, it was, it was not good, okay? It was not pretty. It, was, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't fantastic by any means. That was my first sermon. Nobody wanted to show up for my sermon. Why do you think thousands of people showed up for Jesus' first sermon? Because he was the first rabbi of that generation that was presented as a rabbi with authority and they hadn't had one for one generation and so when the new rabbi came along now here's what it meant to have authority when you were a rabbi and you graduated from school you would always have to teach whatever your rabbi taught you remember we talked about the yoke everybody say the yoke so you as a rabbi when you graduated you would have to teach the yoke of your rabbi that's just the way it worked why because you didn't have authority if you were a rabbi with authority or a rabbi with smeek, you know what that meant? You got to teach your own interpretation of the scripture. Think about Jesus' first sermon. What are the things that he says in his first sermon? You have said it old. 
blah, 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 blah. But I say to you, how many times in his first sermon did he say, you have heard of old, da, 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 da. But I say to you, what was he doing? He was throwing it down. He'd say, hey, look, there's a new sheriff in town. We're doing things a little different. This is a new Jack City. And, and, and we're not going to do it the way it's always been done because y'all have corrupted this thing. I'm so sorry. To be inside of my head, you have no idea. Um, so Jesus was a rabbi with authority. Have you ever wondered, this makes sense of why, hey, have you ever wondered why Jesus showed up on the seashore and gives the most compelling speech ever? Follow me. It almost sounds guruish, like he gave him like a Jedi mind trick. He walks up to the disciples and is like, follow me. Because all the Jesus movie, movies depict Jesus as like mystical, right? Follow me. Okay, why? All right, if you're a guy out there and you have a boat, what would it take for you to leave your boat? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> because these guys left their family business. They left their wives. They left their boat, which might have been the toughest of all. They left everything. They left everything to follow Jesus after one motivational speech that consisted of two words. Follow me. Why would you do that? Because he was a rabbi. And what was the greatest honor for any kid to follow a rabbi and to one day become a rabbi? So that makes sense of why these guys were willing to give up everything. They wanted to follow Jesus and not just any kind of rabbi, but this was a rabbi with authority. He got to teach his own yoke, his own interpretation of how you should live out the scriptures and live for God. Is this starting to make a little bit of sense now? When you see Jesus, now all of a sudden the stuff that sounds kind of guruish actually begins to make a lot of sense now. Now here's what you need to know, is that as you follow Jesus, you don't get to make up your own yoke. Did you know that? Because number one, you're not a rabbi. And you definitely don't have authority, right? You don't have that. So do you know what you get to do as a Jesus follower? Do you get to teach your own yoke or do you teach the, teach the yoke of Rabbi Jesus? You teach the yoke of Rabbi Jesus. So which begs the question this. If G now, let's, let's read the scripture again. Matthew chapter 11. Let's read it one more time. And now let's make sense of it. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened by the old system. And I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. Because my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. See, here's the deal. When you fill in the blank of Jesus is, you need to know that Jesus is a rabbi. And this is really, really powerful because here's the deal. Most of you in this place don't follow Jesus as rabbi. You follow Jesus as savior. And that's great because I really want you to go to heaven. That's a good thing. I'm pro heaven. I'm anti hell. I'm all down with that. But once you get beyond that, I don't want you stuck with only knowing Jesus as my Savior, meaning, hey, look, Jesus, I have put my faith in him. He is the forgiveness of my sins. That's, I want you to go so much more beyond that because here was the role of the rabbi and the disciple. You've got to remember this. Jesus didn't come to make Christians. Jesus doesn't ever utter the word Christian. That came along later by outsiders just calling you Jesus followers. Jesus did not come to make Christians. Jesus came to make what? Disciples. And so Jesus doesn't want just you to nominally, like in name only, adhere to the fact that he's your savior. Jesus actually wants you to follow him. 
And the role of the disciple, this is why the sermon is not entitled Jesus is my teacher, because the role of the teacher student relationship is for you to know what the teacher knows. That's not disciple. The role of the disciple is to become what my rabbi is, not just to know what he knows, but to become like him. That's where I want you to go. I want you to go so much further than acknowledging God and Jesus and, and, and having him be your savior, savior and praying a prayer. And the prayer. Look, trust me, I'm all for that. That's, that's really stage one. I'm down for that, I promise. But I want you to go so much beyond that. I want you to take up the yoke of Jesus. Because here, here's what you've got to ask. If I'm going to follow Jesus and I've got to carry that yoke and I'm going to be with Jesus, I don't get to teach my own yoke, what do I do then and how do I become like him? How do I not only know what he knows but become more like him? What is the yoke of Jesus? And here's just, here's just my discovery. I'm going to prove it here over the next few minutes. Here's my discovery is that Jesus' yoke appears to be a yoke of radical graciousness. Radical graciousness. He did stuff in his day that just blew everybody's mind. He so uh, basically went against culture and went against normalcy and just met. Why do you think they killed him? Because he, he maintained the status quo? That he went with the flow? That he just did what? No. They killed him because he disrupted a corrupt system whereby they were literally taking money from the people of God in a racketeering system. So they, they, he just, how many know you start messing with evil people's money, you're going to die? What's the yoke of Jesus? It's this yoke of radical graciousness. Uh, let me prove it to you. In John chapter 2, he sits down and he talks with a religious leader. And the religious leader wants to know more about who he is. He goes, you've got to be from God. There is something about you. No one does what you do without coming from God. And he goes, you know what you need? You need to be born again. It's the only time in Scripture that he ever says that. But then in the very, so he starts with a religious leader. But in the very next chapter, he goes, he goes to a woman who had been married five different times and was shacked up with number six. They just hadn't sealed the deal yet. She's not only a woman that, that so, so we went from the highest of religious person now to a Samaritan woman who, who basically the Jews, if you read the historical writings, they called them dogs. That way they were incredibly racist towards each other. They hated each other, basically. And so Jesus shows up to a Samaritan that he, you would never talk to in that day in that culture. And then he spoke to a woman who it was never it was never kosher for a man just to approach a single woman or a married woman and just have conversation with her. And Jesus just obliterates cultural norms and says, hey. Tell me about you. Uh, can I get you some water? And Jesus just extends. And this woman so enthralled through her conversation with Jesus, this woman becomes the first New Testament evangelist and goes and tells the whole city that Jesus is Messiah and he's come. It's, it's incredible the kindness and the graciousness that he shows to a religious leader and then to this woman. And, and it gets, there's, there's another woman. The story goes is that she is caught in the act of adultery. Okay, like, not a woman who's accused, not a woman who has a reputation, a woman who's caught in the act. <laughs> yeah. What you would do is this, is, is that if you caught a person doing that, you would have to take that person to someone with authority and get them to make a judgment on what to do with them. And so that's how the story plays out. Don't they bring her to Jesus? They throw her at the feet of Jesus after having caught her in the act, and they say, hey, the Torah says that she can be stoned, but what do you say? And they were trying to entrap him. They wanted to see if he'd break the laws of the Old Testament, right? And so Jesus, who's brilliant, knows what's going on, understands the game that is being played, and so his response to them is so simple. He basically says, okay, you're totally right. That's what the law said, that if you did this, that you could be stoned. So let's do it. 
Here's what we're going to do, though, because I'm, I'm a rabbi with authority. I'm going to throw down my own yoke. Here's where we're going to do it. Whoever one of you is without sin, you get to go first. And so what does Jesus do? It's brilliant. He adheres to the law, but then adds a spin to it. And then basically, he doesn't remove her sin. Did you notice that? He doesn't remove her sin. He just removes her accusers. Because if you don't have an accuser, you can't be judged of anything. Isn't this what Jesus has done for you and I? Jesus forgives you of your sin, but how many know you still, I know you, you, you still sin. You still got your issues. So did Jesus remove all the sin in your life? He's forgiven it, but he didn't remove all the sin in your life. What did he do? By going to the cross and dying in your place, the only thing he did was remove the accusers. And when there's no accusers, it's a mistrial and they throw the thing out. You are free because of what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus has these moments of radical graciousness. There's this one time where there's a guy, this one doesn't make sense, this will mess with your theology. There's this one time where this guy, he, Jesus is in a teaching session in a home. There's a guy who's paralyzed. And his four friends want to bring him to Jesus, but it's so crowded they can't even get close enough. So what they do is, is they start chiseling a hole in the roof, and then they lower the guy down through the roof in front of Jesus. Jesus looks at the friends and says, wow, you guys have such incredible faith, I'm going to forgive him of his sins. Really? So you're saying it wasn't his faith, it was just his friend's faith? That's what Jesus said. Radical graciousness. Like, just, I want you in, I want you in. Like, he finds this one guy who's a tax collector, he's basically a traitor to the nation of Israel. He's hanging out in a tree. He says, hey, I want to go hang out with you, I want to go have dinner with you. Salvation is coming to your house tonight. No, you didn't deserve it. We're bringing it. That's Jesus, and the yoke of Jesus is just radical graciousness. We, we, we could go on and on and on. There's all these different stories. That were, this is where it's really pushed to the test, and we'll, we'll kind of start moving towards the end here. Jesus' yoke is so put to the test near the end of his life. Think about this. When Jesus is in the garden praying, there says, it says that there's a group of soldiers that come to arrest Jesus. Peter gets all huffy in the moment, goes commando on him, pulls out a sword, and he takes one of the soldiers and cuts his ear off. How many of you know, that's, that's pretty dope. Anyway, like, no, you won't. We go, he went gladiator style on him. This is, this is where I want you to see Jesus. Jesus is like, dude, would you chill out? Put that away. You're going to die if you keep doing that, is what he tells him. He literally just picks up the ear and puts the ear back on. Now, how would you treat the people that are coming to unjustly arrest you? Y'all are mad at cops when they give you tickets. Getting all hyphy and mad and angry. You were speeding. Suck it up and take it like a man. They're coming to arrest Jesus so they can crucify him. You ever wonder why, why Peter did that? The, the fascinating thing about it is this, is that the, 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 the certain group of soldiers that were coming, it says that this guy's name that, that got the ear whacked off was named Malchus, M-A-L-C-H-U-S, Malchus. And he was the servant of the high priest who was leading this group of soldiers. Here's the deal. You, you ever wonder why, why Peter didn't take his head clean off? Peter wasn't actually trying to kill him. Peter was just trying to maim him because in the book of Leviticus it says that if you wanted to be a priest... And you, you were always born into the priesthood by being from a certain tribe, the tribe of Levi. But, you know, how many know if there's a bad one in the bunch, you want to get rid of him, right? And so what they would do is, is if you were bad or evil and they didn't want you to be the high priest, because that would be weird, they would maim your ear. They'd basically cut like a slice in the lobe of your ear because the book of Leviticus said that you couldn't be the high priest and ha have these maims on your face. 
And so what Peter was trying to do was saying this. I'm going to make sure that you never, ever, ever get to serve God's people or get to commune with God. Does that sound like the yoke of Jesus? As a matter of fact, go back to the table of, 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 of money changers in the temple. Jesus gets furious because here's one of the questions you have to ask. Jesus was radically gracious most of the time. When were the only times he was not radically gracious? When religious leaders were trying to keep people from God. That was the only people he got. And he, he, he was mad at them. He called them names. He's like, you're just like your daddy, the devil, who's a liar. And you're a brood of vipers. You're a snake. He had all these bad names he called. And, and, and the reason why is because they made it so hard. They had literally taken 600 commands of the Old Testament and then added 500 more to them and said, see if you can get to God now. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. So he starts flipping over the money tables because they were set up in the outer court of the temple, which is the only place the Gentiles could worship. And so literally all the Gentiles who wanted to come and worship God couldn't, couldn't worship. Why do you think Jesus got mad? The only time Jesus doesn't show radical graciousness is for arrogant religious people who try to keep others from coming to God. But yet the very people that's trying to arrest him, he heals and restores them so that they can connect with God. Do you see? Let's keep going forward. Jesus is hanging on the cross. There's a thief. Some guy that was so bad that Rome decided to crucify him rather than just imprison or beat him. This guy was bad. I don't know what all he did. It doesn't say what he did, but he was bad. In his last moments, he'd done nothing for the kingdom of God. Hadn't served, worshipped, tithed, done children's church. Never done anything. In his last dying breath, he says, Would you remember me when you get to your kingdom? And Jesus is like, Yeah, come on. You're getting in. Radical graciousness. That's what grace is, isn't it? It's the undeserved, unearned kindness of God. And you see Jesus handing it out. Like 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 people hand out Halloween uh, Halloween candy on Halloween. Just here's more, here's more, here's more. He just radical graciousness. Take it a step further. There are people at the foot of the cross while he is in his last moments. And he utters the way. This is is some of his last words before he dies. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Do you know what they were doing at the foot of the cross? They were mocking him and rolling dice to see who would get to keep his clothes. They weren't repentant. Jesus is still trying to get you closer to God. Radical. And he put his yoke to the test. Because what did Jesus teach? You've got to remember, he, it, wasn't, it, was, it was who he was and what he taught. What did Jesus teach? Listen to this. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, remember the old school and I'm going to do new school. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's old school. We're not doing that no more. But I tell you, love your enemies. Yay! Right? No amens came out when I said that. Love your enemies. And everybody's like, yes, pastor, go on. Preach. Talk about it. Nobody did that. This is Jesus' sermon. And so he says this, he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. How often do you do that? And then he says that you may be children of your father in heaven. Jesus taught the yoke of radical graciousness. He lived the yoke of radical graciousness and it was totally put to the test because the very people that were arresting him, the very people that were mocking him, that were beating him, what did he do to them? His yoke was put to the test and he lived it out. Now he's inviting you to come in to that same thing. Let's let's kind of let's kind of close with this. I told you that I'm, I I want Jesus to be your savior. 
And so I, I really do want that. Jesus is my Savior. When you fill in the blank in your life, I want this to come up. I want this to be there. But you know what would be more powerful for you and for everybody that you know and the world around you? It would be more powerful if you moved here and you said Jesus is not just a rabbi. Jesus is my rabbi. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I want to be so close to Jesus. I want to become. I don't want to just learn what he knows. I mean, that's powerful enough. That, there's a lot of wisdom there. I want to learn everything he knows, but even more than that. I want to become who he was. And here's why. If Jesus is your savior, you will get to heaven. Not just heave. Bam! Jesus is your Savior, you get to heave. If Jesus is your Savior, you will get to heaven. If Jesus is your rabbi, you will bring heaven to earth. There's a difference. Some of you live a life just trying to get out of here or squeeze into heaven. That's not the yoke of Jesus. Jesus is wanting you to take up his yoke of radical graciousness. How do you love other people? How do you treat other people? How do you do people that wrong you? Here's a thought. Has there anybody that's ever come after you and attacked you? And you were quick to kick them to the curb, dismiss them, cold shoulder them, shun. Jesus puts their ear back on. Jesus is extending grace, extending forgiveness. Just everybody he can get into the kingdom. He's just trying to drag them in with radical graciousness. That's the yoke of Jesus. Do you look like that? Do you live like that? I'm telling you, the only way that you're going to know what he knows is to dig yourself into his life and his teachings. And the only way that you will become like who he was is to take a look at how he treated other people, how he responded in every situation, and then say, how can I become more like that so that I may look like my rabbi, so that I can become who he was. When you fill in the blank, I want you to fill it in. Jesus is not just my teacher. He is my rabbi. Let's pray this morning. Father, I pray, God, that you would just begin to challenge us, convict us, encourage us. Holy Spirit, do what it is that you do. God, you have a way of stirring us up, of opening up our heart, of opening up our eyes, of helping us to to point our heart towards you, of seeing things that we've never seen before, of living a way that we've never lived before. For some of us, we're, we're doing some really, really foolish things and we're not living your ways, Jesus. We need to repent and turn towards you. Some of us, we're treating our, our, our spouse, we're treating our children, we're treating our parents, we're treating our friends in such a such an awkward and weird way, such an unchristlike way, God. We want to become like who you are. God, help us to become a people of radical graciousness, people that are quick to encourage, to love, to forgive, to heal, to restore so that we might become the light of the world like a city set on a hill so that we might become the salt of the earth. Jesus, we want you to save us and forgive us without a doubt. But Jesus, today we want to commit to you that we want to become like you. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer today. We ask that you give us the help and the strength and the grace to do so, Lord. And we all said, Amen. Can you give the Lord a big hand clap today?